welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stuart, welcome back. Thanks, buddy. Great to be here. And flattered, honored, and humbled to be joined by the former chairman of the Republican National Committee and friend of The Lincoln Project, Michael Steele. He was lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland and has his own podcast as well called The Michael Steele Podcast. Michael, welcome back. Hey, man, it's great to be back in the neighborhood hanging out with the bros. Love it. <laughs> well, we are certainly happy to have you back. So, gents, today I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with what we see vis-a-vis corporate America and how they're starting to move, not necessarily in unison, but certainly in packs towards a different position than maybe any of us thought they would vis-a-vis voting rights. And also want to talk about on Friday, it'll be the 100-day mark after the January 6th insurrection and sacking of the U.S. Capitol. But before that, I want to get to what happened this past weekend. And down in Palm Beach at the Four Seasons, the Republican Party had a retreat. And Michael, you've probably been both the head of many of these, the organizer, speaker, et cetera, et cetera, where attendants were shuttled about 10 miles up the road to a dinner hosted by Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And he was the evening's keynote. And during the speech, he continued to pound the false narrative of a stolen election and also went on to criticize woke corporations for opposing Georgia's new voting law. However, during the speech, not surprisingly, he went off script. You could always tell when he was reading off a teleprompter, he was sort of like this automaton. And then when he you know, wandered off the written word, he certainly got more animated. But among other things, in a time when they were trying to unify the party, he called Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky a dumb son of a bitch and mocked McConnell's wife, which he's never been afraid to do to his opponents. Also during the speech, Trump echoed his plans to target his GOP enemies in upcoming primaries and said that he was so disappointed in former Vice President Mike Pence for not doing more to stop the certification of the presidential election results. Michael, just give us a little bit of background here. So these happen, I believe, twice a year. This is the grandees from the states, the national committee men, the national committee women, some of the big donors. So what goes into one of these things? And then what was your impression based on what you saw this weekend? You know, there's the business portion, which deals with the RNC mechanics and where the party is, and particularly coming on the heels of an election, especially one where you lose the White House, the Senate and the House. You know, there's a lot of soul searching and sort of deep dives. That's kind of par for the course. On the money piece, it's a chance to sort of get a lot of the big donors in the room to sort of give them an assessment as well as where the party's going in its future. This was unusual in that typically when a president is done, whether they are done by term limits or done by the vote of the voters, as was the case with Trump, they just go away. I mean, you may ask for the president to show up, but typically they don't show up in that first year. They want to create the separation. But that's not Trump. Trump has in his mind to control this apparatus and continues to demand of it that it provides financing for whatever operations he intends. And so this event took on a whole different meaning. One, because Trump was there. Two, because the RNC fronted so much money for an after-election event that's not going towards the upcoming elections or getting ready for the next series of elections. So that's sort of how these processes work and why this stands out as an anomaly for a lot of folks. So, Stuart, one thing that the chairman noted was that in the aftermath of an election in which the party in power loses the White House, loses the Senate, made up some ground in the House, but didn't regain a majority, 
you were there in the aftermath of 2012 when then Governor Mitt Romney, now Senator Mitt Romney, lost his bid against President Barack Obama. And in the aftermath of that, the GOP put together the Growth and Opportunity Project, or as it's sometimes called, the autopsy, that basically said that if the Republican Party wanted to grow, you know, going into the future, that it was really going to need to broaden its appeal, be a more open, bigger tent party, and really start to try and broaden its base of voters outside of sort of southern and, and rural and exurban whites. But what we've seen not only as of last summer with the party's platform, but this time around is that there's no appreciable governing philosophy or even political philosophy. It was just one more chance for Trump to get up there and say crazy ass things. Yeah, you know, what's fascinating to me about the so-called autopsy is first, I think Reince Priebus deserves credit for instigating that process. It's never easy for any organization to be self-critical. The conclusions were fairly obvious. You needed to appeal to more non-white voters, younger voters, more women, particularly single mothers or unmarried. And it was presented, though, and this is what I think is key, not just as a political necessity, like we need to do this to draw more people, but as a moral necessity. If you were going to earn the mandate of governing this big, confusing, cacophonous country, you needed to be more representative of the country. And then when Trump came along, there was almost this like audible sigh of relief it was like, oh, thank God we can win without pretending we care about this stuff, which just sort of epitomized to me, you know, how I ended up writing a book I never thought I'd write called It Was All a Lie, because I don't know what else you can call that. And, you know, all through the 2016 campaign, I'm sure both of you experienced this, particularly the chairman, those inside the Trump campaign were constantly calling others and the press, working them to tell them what a disaster Trump was. We just had to get through this and recover from it, but we had to just go along with it so that other people on the ticket wouldn't have a complete washout. But God, you know, this is terrible. And, and that went on to about 10 o'clock on election night, when all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, Trump is great. And we're still there. This weekend, I think, you know, in all likelihood, it's going to be looked back on almost historically as a codification of the fact that Donald Trump actually was attempting a coup and Pence and McConnell didn't go along with it. Therefore, they should be held responsible for the fact that Biden is president, not because Biden won an election in a democracy, but because we had the ability to deny the will of the people to keep ourselves in power. And we didn't exercise that. Therefore, we are weak. So to that end, Rob, why don't we play the clip of Congresswoman Liz Cheney and her reaction to what she heard this past weekend? The former president um, is using the same language that he knows provoked violence on January 6th. Uh, you know, as a party, we need to be focused on the future. We need to be focused on uh, embracing the Constitution, not embracing insurrection. Uh, and I think it's very important for people to realize that a fundamental part of the Constitution and, and of who we are as Americans is the rule of law. It's the judicial process. Uh, the election wasn't stolen. There was a judicial process in place. If you attack the judicial process and you attack the rule of law, you aren't defending the Constitution. You're at war with the Constitution. Chairman, yeah, obviously, Congresswoman Cheney and I believe 10 other of her colleagues, nine other of her colleagues voted to impeach Trump a second time, uh, have come under, you know, withering fire from their own party because of it. And each one of them, I think, has stood steadfast in their belief that Trump was bad for the party and ultimately bad for the country. 
But in these retreats also, there's supposed to be some unifying piece of this too, which is in the, in the aftermath of an election, especially one in which you had a pretty bad time, that you know, you're supposed to be finding that thing that's going to bring you all together. For Trump, what's bringing everyone together is the idea of the big lie, the idea that it was stolen from him, that he's just going to keep beating that drum. So, Stuart, I want to talk about the dynamic between Trump and Mitch McConnell with an add-on for Senator Rick Scott from Florida, who's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, because it's this weird triangle. You've got McConnell, who believed that he could ride the Trump tiger, and I'm not sure that he was successful, although he probably thinks he is. And you've got Trump, who absolutely loathes McConnell and probably already did, right? But they were means to one another's ends. And then you've got Rick Scott down there, who's literally giving, you know, the senatorial committee is giving Trump an award, like this really like lame silver bowl for being some great patriot. So what's going on? Because you've got a principled stand from someone like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. And then you've got Rick Scott, who's clearly just kowtowing because not only does he want to try and raise as much money as he can for 22, but wants to run for president in 24. And then you've got McConnell, who really doesn't have a lot of principle when it comes to anything other than his own power and the money he needs to raise. So what's the dynamic there? I think when you look at that cast of characters in different ways, they each highlight, I think, the total collapse of the Republican Party as a moral governing force. You know, Mitch McConnell, I think you're absolutely right. He was fairly confident that history would record Donald Trump as his fool. I think odds are looking good. It's going to go the other way around. Here's a guy who woke up on January 5th, who was majority leader of the Senate, woke up on January 6th. He was minority leader of the Senate and he was running for his life to his own office, all because of Donald Trump. You have someone who was leader of the Senate when they tried Donald Trump, who refused to vote to convict and then went out and made one of the more extraordinary statements ever made of why he should have voted to convict right after he didn't vote to convict. So I think when you step back and look at this, McConnell is going to look like a hollow man, like T.S. Eliot's classic hollow man. Rick Scott, you know, I've said this for years, had there been a world in which there had been a more aggressive local journalism, say the world of 1995, Rick Scott never would have been elected in Florida. I mean, here's a guy who fled the fifth 70-something times, I think it is. You can check my math. The largest Medicare fraud in history. And yet he still was able to buy himself a governor's race and then a Senate race. There's nothing normal about these people. This is why I say that, you know, Republican Party isn't really a political party. It's a syndicate. It's a cartel. It exists. As far as I can see, the only purpose it serves is to beat Democrats and get in power. There's no governing theory there. And that's like what OPEC is. I mean, no one asks OPEC, what is its larger moral purpose? It's like they sell oil. No one asks like a narco cartel. Like, so why do you guys exist? Well, we sell dope. Why do Republicans exist? To elect Republicans, beat Democrats. I think this is terrible. You know, those of us that kind of came from the center right, because it by default leaves the field open to the center left, because the center left can articulate a theory of government. Elizabeth Warren, hate what she says, love what she says, but you can argue with it in a coherent fashion. How do you argue with Donald Trump in a coherent fashion or, or Rick Scott in a coherent fashion on any theory of government? You just can't. I think Stuart put his finger on probably the most important animating part of this fight, because it really does, at the end of the day, gentlemen, boil down to who the hell are you? You run around beating your chest, talk about you're a conservative. And you run around beating your chest saying that everybody who doesn't suck on the teeth of Donald Trump is a rhino. So tell me then, 
how would you define being a Trumper? How do you define being this iteration of republicanism or conservatism? And it goes off the rails. Because what are you going to point to? Oh, yeah, well, we deregulated this or we deregulated that. And we appointed all these judges who, by the way, a significant number of whom were highly incompetent individuals would never otherwise be appointed to anything. Certainly not a judge since they've never tried a case or been in a courtroom. But okay, you want to point to that as success. For life. For life, right. And you're worried about socialism? In the face of fascism that has been the calling card of the GOP for the last five years? So what then becomes this governing idea when your platform is carved in the image of one man? And when you were given the opportunity during the eight years of Obama and the four years of Donald Trump, that's 12 years, folks. I ain't great at math, but I can add eight plus four and understand that in that time, you have yet to actually put forward in front of the country a jobs plan, a healthcare plan, an infrastructure plan, an economic recovery plan. It's all reactionary politics. And it's all built around the idea of labeling the left socialist, demagoguing that, embracing white nationalism, the Proud Boys at all. The country's been changing since the country was formed <laughs> culturally. And why is that? Because we've always been an amalgam of everything else from around the globe that comes here and calls us home. So you're going to get a little taste of this, and a little taste of that. Suddenly, yeah, we've had these spikes in our history where people react to that, but not like this, not the way this has shaken itself out. And I think Stuart is exactly right. How do you then go look at voters and say, hey, put us in charge of governing your future when we can't even tell you what the health care plan is we want to promote? So I want to move on to our next topic here, which is still about, frankly, money and politics and keeps McConnell at the middle of it. This past weekend, about 100 CEOs took part in a Zoom conference led by Jeffrey Sonnenfeld from Yale University about what corporate America's role is in protecting American democracy and protecting the rights of voters to participate freely, fairly, safely in those elections. A lot of this coming on the heels of SB202 that was passed in Georgia. Coca-Cola and Delta, I think, did their level best not to take a fully-fledged position on that bill before it was signed. Certainly have now taken you know, a much harder stance, especially, I believe, Delta. And so now you're starting to see, frankly, a lot of activism out of CEOs, probably, that they maybe didn't want. But now you see more and more of them coming to this. But sticking with McConnell, Rob, why don't we play the clip of what McConnell's response to that was last week. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. And don't be intimidated by the left into taking up causes that put you right in the middle of one of America's greatest political debates. I'm not talking about political contributions. Most of them contribute to both sides. They have political action committees. That's fine. It's legal. It's appropriate. I support that. I'm talking about taking a position on a highly incendiary issue like this and punishing a community or a state because you don't like a particular law they passed. I just think it's stupid. So now, Chairman, you've sat down with McConnell many times. Am I wrong in believing that that was, even in his strange, monotone, 
a little bit of panic and no small amount of anger? It was both of those things. And it was also a little bit more of the typical hypocrisy that comes from this this idea that, you know, these corporations who are striking these checks now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court has already declared them to be citizens. Okay. So you're meaning to tell me that as corporate citizens, they just write a check and can't say anything. They don't have a position on anything. Okay, fine. No one believes that. But that certainly wasn't the position of McConnell or any Republican back in 2017, 16 and 17, when they were trying to pass the tax cut. They had all those corporations on speed dial to get them out there to talk about how the great benefit this would be, yada, yada, yada. So everybody engaged in the politics of the tax cut. So now you want them to be quiet because on this critical social issue, they are speaking out. Why? Because at the end of the day, there are more people who buy and use their products and services than there are Republicans. So at the end of the day, the shareholders, the CEOs, all of those people involved in company X are going to have to weigh when you've got an entire city, town, and neighborhood communities and states across the country weighing in saying, okay, we're just not going to use your product or services anymore. McConnell knows how that works. And so when the citizens say, oh, gee, Delta, before we get on your plane, recognizing that you ain't say crap about this law in Georgia that disenfranchises the entire Atlanta area where your planes take off. What's your position? Just so we know before we get on your plane. You mean to tell me a corporation is not going to pay attention to that? Of course they are. And McConnell knows they are. And there's no amount of browbeating. And I said this publicly, they were laughing their asses off when they heard that. A, because they know McConnell and others are knocking on their doors beforehand, asking them to get involved and to weigh in on some of these other tax and other issues. But again, who are they going to listen to? McConnell or 100,000 people who decide we're no longer going to fly Delta? And Stuart, corporations in this country have taken stands on social issues before. Is this Zoom call with these 100 CEOs, among which are you know some very big American companies, Is this indicative of a sort of, I don't want to call them woke, but an awakening of corporate America that we've tried our darndest to really, to McConnell's point, stay out of a lot of these issues, but now whether or not it's because we see what's happened with, you know, the resulting issues of the big lie that led to January 6th, that led to Georgia, Iowa, now Florida, Texas, et cetera. What do you think's going on in those boardrooms? What do you think's going on in those C-suites that's getting so many of these folks who probably would maybe not otherwise have ever gotten involved in this are now willing to sign letters, take public stands, get in fights with the governor of Georgia when they might not otherwise ever had to do that before. I think you have to take at face value as a given that these entities are going to do what they see as in their best interest. So that means they don't want to be about the business of disenfranchising their employees and their customers. That sort of is just base level self-defeating. But I think there's a larger point here that is really different about this moment. If you go to a system that Donald Trump would like, and now the Republican Party is pretty much officially adopted as its position, it's a position in which we will have permanent minority rule. And you don't have voters deciding who governs us. You have a political party deciding. And that is one step closer to Putin's Russia. And how are corporations doing in Putin's Russia? Not a great place to be a CEO if you don't agree with Putin, because you're either going to get killed or you're going to end up in jail after they fail to kill you. I think that's not an exaggeration. 
The greatest danger of the moment that we have now is not to realize the greatest danger. And what is happening now is unique. You have a party that believes that elections in America should not be decided by the people if your side loses. That's not a belief in democracy. So I think something deeply troubling occurred and enough of these corporations and enough leadership inside the corporation realized that the danger of this moment uh, must be confronted and they take uncomfortable stance. Corporations don't like being in this position, but they're taking that position because they see it as in their long-term interest. And they're right. They are. And so, Chairman, going back to McConnell, so his position was sit down, shut up, turn the money back on. Because so many companies also in the wake of January 6th, what we're going to talk about in just a second, some said we're not giving money to anybody for right now. But others said we're specifically not giving money to those 147 members who voted against certifying the election. Obviously, Rick Scott, previously mentioned as chairman of the senatorial committee, is one of those, as is minority leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy. So do you believe that McConnell's, and I'll call this an outburst for him, was generated by his surprise that companies were getting involved or his concern that as he's trying to raise this money, probably to fend off a bunch of wacko primary candidates next spring and summer, that he's for the first time, maybe in a long time, unsure of where he needs to be on all this? I don't know so much about his being unsure about where he needs to be. I think it is really the latter of the two that you just said. It wasn't that he was surprised. What he's nervous about is the potential of going into this upcoming cycle without the competitive advantage that Republicans have had in the fundraising space for quite some time, number one. Number two, the incredible disadvantage that will come from, as you just noted, having some additional wackos in play. And, you know, I give you Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are each raising money hand over fist. Marjorie Taylor Greene, $2.3 million raised in the first quarter of 2021. Right, exactly. And so he knows that those folks are going to drain a portion of the well with small dollar donors, especially who have not really been a mainstay per se in the Republican giving sphere, because it's all kind of oriented towards corporations and major individual donors. So he's kind of looking at the landscape and trying to figure out, okay, we are at a potential disadvantage here. I don't need the corporations to get in this game this way. And he's thinking about from this perspective, not so much the Republicans, but to give any more firepower to the left to play more effectively with these donors. Because given the statements of folks saying, oh, we're not going to give to Republicans or we're not going to give to the 147, you can pretty much kind of negotiate your way around that. But it becomes a little bit more problematic when major companies are now tagging their dollars in a way and their support in a way that makes it harder to do the sort of backroom conversation, have the backroom deal, figure out ways in which they can save face and the party can still make some cash. He's thinking and calculating. I think a little bit of it was an outburst. Also a lot of pressure from the NRSC, recognizing the difficulty that they're having raising money right now anyway. The one thing about McConnell, I think people have to appreciate and it still shocks the hell out of me that the left and the press don't understand is that he's always at least a half a beat ahead of where you are. He just is. I've seen it too many times to know the man is rarely in a position where he has to 
react or he is taken out of sorts. I think he saw this coming to some extent. I think some of this, you put it perfectly, basically saying, okay, guys, just shut the hell up, write the checks, and let's move on. Let's not make this more dramatic than it needs to be. Let's not make this a big deal because it isn't. He tries to play it down and at least get back on that footing where he's a half a beat ahead of everybody else. And so that's a little bit of what I think you saw there. And we'll see how successful he is in doing that. And a lot of that's going to depend on, A, what these companies do, because if they really do hold to their word and not give those dollars and not willing to cut the side deals, it's going to pay to pay attention to the FEC reports that are becoming out starting in June. For all of democracy-oriented groups and individuals, pull those damn FEC reports because you can't hide where you spend your money. So, you know, to that end, on Friday, we'll mark 100 days since January 6th and the insurrection, the march on the Capitol, ultimately the sacking of the Capitol, the death of a police officer, the death of five others. Two Capitol Police officers took their own lives in the aftermath and dozens were injured. And so we released an ad on Sunday, which recaps sort of the timeline of how we got to that place. Rob, why don't we play that? This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. The only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. I think mail-in voting is going to rig the election. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. This is the greatest scam in the history of politics. Are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? I have to say, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election. Get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very transfer. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. The election is being rigged, but we are going to stop it. We're going to beat the rigged system. We're going to beat the rigged election. We are not going to back down. So, you know, Michael... Stuart and I were talking about this over the weekend, and I said, well, you know, Trump's been at this since last summer. And he said, no, he's been at it since 2016, that it was always the predicate for any loss, which in Trump's world has to be someone else's fault. In this case, it has to be rigged, whether or not it was early voting, absentee voting, drop boxes, you know, ballots being squirreled away in vans marked Biden ballots or whatever other crazy ass thing it is they came up with. But the result of you know, that big lie was what we saw on January 6th. And I think one of the things that, you know, we've seen that I think concerns us most, and I'll have Stu weigh in here in a sec, but I want to get your thoughts first, is that, as you know, Washington, the Beltway has its own inertia, wants to return to the mean as quickly as it can, which means that Republicans don't want to talk about this because they know it's bad for them. And Democrats don't want to really talk about it because that means they may have to actually do something about it. And so, you know, you obviously having been lieutenant governor of the neighboring state and chairman of the RNC, I mean, what do you think's going on amongst the Washington elite, for lack of a better way to put it, that they're so either unwilling or unable to really take to task those like a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz or a Kevin McCarthy when they all know that they're criminals hiding in plain sight? I would reconfigure your analysis there with respect to the interest of both parties involved here. You're absolutely right. Republicans don't want to talk about it. They want to pretend January 6th was nothing more than either A, good-natured American citizens coming to engage with their elected officials, 
or B, some patriotic moment that was disrupted by Antifa. So there's that. On the Democratic side, I would disagree. I think they want to do something about it. In fact, they've been trying to do something about it in a variety of ways. The battle among the Democrats is how far do we go in doing something about it? And so that's where the president and the vice president Biden and Harris will really have to work that piece among the Democratic caucus members in the House and Senate. You have now H.R. 1 legislation around the voting, you know, as a voting response. My recommendation has been, you know, while I support H.R. 1 in principle, carve out all the crap, get it down to just the voting pieces that are the central part, because that's where you push the Republicans button. That's where you push them. It's easy for Republicans to sit back and say, you know, Democratic bill, socialism, you know, they start ringing out all the, the words. When you have a bill that says this is to restore the Voting Rights Act of the United States, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and these measures here are to deal with voter election and voter suppression by the states that we see going on in the various pieces of legislation, all of a sudden now you've narrowed the focus of that conversation to some very, very important, highly supported initiatives by the general public. And then it becomes a different narrative and a lot less room to hide behind the well, this is a typical political Christmas tree. You know, what does the environment have to do with infrastructure? What does infrastructure have to do with voting? You know, kind of kind of narrative. And so I think it's important that what happens now politically, I think is going to be driven more by the Democrats than the Republicans for the very reasons you state, except I think the Democrats need to figure out very quickly how best to position against McConnell and McCarthy rather than positioning against themselves, which they typically are very, very good at. I have yet to figure out how this party has no political common sense at all and can't figure out how to box the ears of their opponents. So may I tell you a quick joke that was told to me by a friend, a European friend of mine? He said, we have a party like your Democratic Party, and we have this joke, and it says that if they were left on a desert island and told that they either had to have steak or chicken to eat for the rest of their lives, they would starve because they'd be so afraid of what people thought of their choice. <laughs> That's right. That's, there you go. That kind of puts it in perspective right there. And you just sit there and you just go, this is not a hard political calculation. I would have conversations with Democrats all the time. Say, did it ever occur to you to ask me how I beat your ass in 2010? <laughs> did you ever try to figure that out? Okay, so here you're going into 2020. And what do you moan and groan about going into 2020? Is you know, potential voter suppression, and you're all upset about gerrymandering and all this other stuff. So where's your strategy to take back state legislatures? I mean, there is a connection here politically that I still don't understand why they don't get it. I mean, I figured that out as a former county state chairman. In my job as national chairman, having sued our governor here in Maryland over his redistricting plan in 2000, had partial victories, won a lot of what we sued for, we were able to change the dynamics. We picked up state seats here in the legislature, so much so that Mike Miller, the Senate president at the time, God rest him, had to change the cloture rules because we were just three votes away from controlling cloture because we could swing three conservative Democrats from Western Maryland to the Republican side. So they changed it from 16 to 19. So that's the strategy. Game it out, people. This is not complicated. 
to engage your political opponent in such a way that you don't have to be dirty and nasty and underhanded. You can use the system against them very much the way your opponents are using the system against you. Well, and Stu, to the chairman's point, you know, there was that story, I think, a week or 10 days ago about that the Coke Network folks were on the phone with one of McConnell's guys and they were talking about H.R. 1 the Voting Rights Act, and they said, well, you got to be careful because actually a lot of this stuff is really popular with even conservatives. Even Republicans believe that, you know, billionaires should have less impact on the elections, that they shouldn't be able to give tens of millions of dollars and have their names hidden. But I want to talk about, in the context of what we saw before the 6th and after the 6th, this idea of intent, that, you know, the intent of Trump originally was always probably in 2016 was just to make himself feel better and say, well, I I lost to Hillary Clinton. Of course, I was going to lose to Hillary Clinton. But in 2020, it was something I think far more directed and far more sinister, which has now opened up a sort of Pandora's box of things as the coup failed, thankfully, but it's not over. And now I think we see, as, as we've mentioned before, that, you know, whether or not it's the stuff at the state legislative level or Republicans pushing back on voting rights at the federal level, that it's all of a piece, right? That it's all about the power. And so talk to me about how you see the intent of all this. The intent is to stay in power in a changing America when you failed as a party to be able to adapt to the changing America. This all goes back to ultimately, you know, the original sin of the modern Republican Party, which is race. It has never adapted to finding a governing theory that appealed to those at the lower economic end of the spectrum, particularly non-white voters. And it's a failure of policy. I mean, I wrote about this in my book. I mean, back when you know, all these campaigns I worked in, there was this idea that Republicans weren't successful with African-Americans in particular because we, predominantly white, didn't know how to talk to African-Americans and how to communicate with them. And that spawned a whole cottage industry of African-American consultants hired by Republicans who would come down to campaigns and talk to campaigns and candidates about how to communicate with African-Americans. And it would usually revolve around certain phrases like, you need to talk not just about better jobs, but meaningful jobs. And we would all nod, and this would seem very profound. And of course, then we'd do it, and it'd have no effect. And it wasn't that African-Americans couldn't understand what Republicans were saying. It was that they did understand what Republicans were saying. And it was not appealing. And it's a failure, I think, to really come up with a policy framework that could sort of square the circle of, on the one hand, we all laughed and thought it was profound that when Ronald Reagan said the most dangerous words are, I'm here from the federal government to help, that spoke to our belief in smaller government. How do you square that with those of which there's a huge number in America who look at the federal government, not as a hostile force, but as a force for good in their lives? one of their best hopes to advance themselves in life. And we failed. We tried. I mean, that's a lot of what compassion and conservatism was about. They got sidetracked by the war. That certainly was at the focus of what Jack Kemp was about. But we we never were able to, as conservatives, break through an appeal. So what do you do in that case? Well, you should try harder and you should ask yourself tough questions and you should keep working until you're able to come up with some framework of government that still is true to some conservative principles, but appeals to a larger audience. Instead, the sort of lazy way out is to try to rig the system, which is what these voter laws, they're trying to be passed. They're trying to reduce the impact of non-white voters on our electorate. And it's all going to fail. 
It's just a question of what process are we going to go through and how much pain is going to be until it's obvious it's failed. Americans are 15 years and under. The majority are non-white. Odds are good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And all the laws are not going to change that. So it's a failure ultimately for the Republican Party to change and to address the future. So it clings to this mythical past, which was never as great for everyone, if we like to say it was. And it's, I think, not going to change until enough Republicans lose. You have enough days like they had on January 6th in Georgia, and Republicans ultimately for survival will be forced to change, but not until then. I can tell you in my 46 years from the day at 17 years old, I decided to become a Republican to this very moment. Stewart just spoke to one of the great frustrations that I have. And the reality and the frustration is the reason we have not had the success, and I pointed this out to the members in my first full meeting of the RNC as national chairman, that I was not their Pied Piper, that the fact that they elected a Black man chairman of the party, Black folks were not going to wake up the next day and go, oh, damn, they elected a Black man chairman. I think I'll become a Republican. That's not how this worked. You couldn't put me on a plane and send me across the country. That wouldn't do jack. Because where this fight is engaged and where it matters is at the precinct level. It's at the county level. It's at the state level. If a central committee member in County X doesn't give a damn about engaging Black folks, guess what? Black folks will not be engaged, no matter what the national chairman says, no matter what the state chairman says, no matter what the president of the United States says. And the party has refused the advice and the recommendations and the efforts from those of us who've tried to point this out to them. As I told the committee members, you got to show your ass up. You just can't put out a statement. You can't have a Black history event. You can't do outreach and think that Black folks give a damn about what you're doing or saying. Because if you don't take the first step and actually sit in a room and get your head handed to you by the Black community, where they can express to you frustrations of the last 60 years of watching you walk away from your civil rights history with them and embrace white nationalism through Barry Goldwater and his embrace of segregation, Richard Nixon and his embrace of a Southern strategy, my political hero, even Ronald Reagan, starting his presidential campaign in the worst godforsaken racist hole in Mississippi, that Black folks are going to sit there and not pay attention to that, to Donald Trump saying that my ancestors are from shithole countries. If you're not understanding how you sound to the community, if you're not listening to what they are saying the issues are, don't come up in my face telling me oh, well, you go to church on Sundays, you must be conservative, therefore you are with us. So that is a big part of the frustration and why there hasn't been success is that the party really, to be honest with it, I don't think they really want it. <laughs> because, dude, it's not hard. You could sum up Donald Trump's Black, quote, outreach this way. Black unemployment is the lowest it has ever been under my term as president. Oh, and by the way, I've got Kanye West and a platinum plan. Really? Oh, so what about what happened with Trayvon Martin? What happened with, oh, Minnesota, Michigan, 
Start going down the list. Police violence in the community, redlining our homes so that we have to sell them because we can't afford to stay in them anymore. Oh, and we can't get loans for new homes in the other part of town and educating our kids. I mean, so it's not hard. It's not complicated. If you want to engage, we have tried to kind of reposition, but there's always been this resistance, not at the top level, but at the ground level, because the county chairman and the state parties, they ain't about doing that level of engagement. They don't want the heat that comes from it, and they don't want the work that has to go into it. But chairman, let me ask you this, because it seems to me that now what we see is that Apparently, it's okay within the party, both at the federal and at the state, and I assume local level, to say these things out loud and intentionally, that it's not an accident anymore. It's not coded language. It's not, well, this is how we feel, but it's uncouth to say it out loud or it's impolitic to say it out loud. Now they're just passing enabling acts to actually make it happen. Our party gave birth to that by the things you've just described that we were both just talking about from Goldwater on. I mean, Understand the reason why Daddy King, Martin Luther King Sr., broke from the Republican Party, because the party let his son sit in jail and didn't speak out against it. Watching the 64 presidential campaign unfold the way it did. We'd been giving these telltale signs for some time because folks need to understand what the political strategy, and this really, I think, says a lot, that there was a political calculation made to win presidential elections. The South was owned by the Democrats. You could not win the presidency without picking off one or two states in the South. And that was becoming harder and harder to do. When Johnson made his break with the segregationist past of the Democratic Party and embraced Kennedy's civil rights agenda, that freed up all these white Southern men to take their vote someplace else. And so we stood thinking we could benefit from that and collect those votes, not appreciating and recognizing that history between our party in this community. This was our political home for Black folks. This was the home of, you know, the first Black members of the Senate, the first Black members of Congress, the first Black representatives in state houses. They were Republicans. And so to then all of a sudden watch that just be swept aside. And so when you see that history kind of pushed aside and you see the party giving license through these actions from 1960s up till Trump, what Trump did was he basically gave the green light and said, it's okay. It's okay. And so that's what you see now. And it's playing out. The grandchildren of those individuals who embraced that kind of politics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s are now acting it out and articulating it. And we saw that at Charlottesville. We've seen it in the recent efforts by Proud Boys. So we as a party have now given that license. We said it's okay to be racist in the open. It's okay to embrace it. Yes, I think there's that. But I think it's also the idea of it's okay to be an asshole in the open, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so you can be an asshole. You can be a racist. You can be aggrieved. You can be potentially violent. And all of these things are good. And the more of it you are, the more we want you. You know, this is just very, very dangerous when you normalize these things. and. The way that it affects the culture downstream from this, and you have an attempted coup that it's not penalized, you just call that a practice. And once you have racism being codified on a level of Tucker Carlson, the new Rush Limbaugh, talking about white replacement theory as a legitimate theory, you're taking steps backwards that we thought that we had reached a point where this would never happen again in America, and it is happening. 
And the thing about that, Stuart, is the fact that the Tucker Carlson's of the world act as if they're victims. They're the victims now. It's like, oh, poor white man. I'm like, dude, seriously? This is your go-to? I'm fascinated by this. I mean, look, I was a Republican for a long time. I was probably never a very good conservative. But now it seems to be the most quote-unquote conservatives are the biggest snowflakes there are. They're oh the most God. sensitive sort of crybabies that you can find when anybody pushes back on them and you're immediately woke and part of the cancel culture and everything else when, in fact, what you just said was absolutely insane and people called you out for it. Yeah. You just sit there and you listen to these people and you're like, oh, you poor little downtrodden, unfortunate thing, you, as you sit here and figure out the next level of grift. Because that's what's happening. That's what this is all about. These folks don't give a rat's ass about policy, about the philosophy, the ideology of what conservatism, what its roots and its orientation is, how that marries up with the political philosophy of the political party known as Republican. They don't care about any of that. This is all about how much money can I raise off of saying the most outlandish bullshit in the world? And you know what? I don't care if it comes off racist because all I can just say at that point is, well, it doesn't matter because every time I say something, they're just going to call it racist anyway. It's like a kid in a schoolyard saying, I know I am, but what about you? I know I am, but what about you? You go into this sort of childish spiral game to nowhere. And as long as they can set that pack up that can troll in the dollars, they don't care. This is not about public service, people. This is about popularity. Well, and let me ask you this, Stu, just to bring us home and back to January 6th, is, you know, the folks that stormed the Capitol that day tend to be middle class, if not upper middle class individuals, some wearing thousands of dollars worth of gear, some bragging that they had flown on private jets to get there, some were physicists, some were school counselors. And so what you're seeing is that there is this ugliness that is taking hold, I think, really amongst middle class and upper middle class and wealthy Republicans, as you like to note, Donald Trump won with people who made $100,000 or more a year. It does not seem to be the economically downtrodden, aggrieved white guy, but the rather well-to-do white guy who maybe just has nothing else to be pissed off about. Yeah. I mean, this is like saying that civil war was about economic inequality, really. And, you know, we should have just called slaves like agrarian interns and not slaves and everything would have been fine. The idea that Donald Trump is a result of economic insecurity is an absurdity. Absolute excuse for the real reasons, the real anger, which goes to this white grievance. Now, there's always been an industry of hate in America, but we've never had a major party codify it and accept it. And that's the difference. And look, it's for another conversation, but it's one we ought to have because it really is part of a global trend. In Western democracies, I mean, look at what's happening in Hungary, Poland. Look at what may be happening in France with Le Pen could win this election. This is troubling. We used to have America as, you know, that shining city on the hill. And now we're not that. I think Biden is doing a lot to regain it. But it is, I think, a fresh lesson in what, when they had civics classes, we were taught that leadership matters. I really think these people who support Donald Trump haven't suddenly become more racist. They haven't become more angry. We all have a part of ourselves where we feel like in this moment we were cheated. I didn't get what I deserved in this moment. But society should tell us that's our worst self, not our best self. And that ultimately, the thing about Trumpism is it's easy. It demands nothing of you. That if you're angry, 
You should be angry. If you feel that that person cut you off in traffic and a little bit of road rage, that's your best self and your sucker if you let them get away with it. That's easy. Well, gentlemen, I think that there's a lot more to go here. But before we go, I just want to let everybody know that I get to re-up my time with Chairman Steele this week on the evening of Wednesday, April the 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Michael and I will be at the 92 Street Y virtually with Mike Barnacle having a conversation about where we are and where we're headed. So, Michael, I'm certainly looking forward to having that conversation with you. But where can we find you online and what else is going on? Yeah, man, uh, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great conversation. I Look, I get to hang out with Reed twice a week. I mean, dude, this is good stuff. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, most people would not pay for that. <laughs> no, it's all good from where I'm sitting. But yeah, no, check me out on Twitter, at Michael Steele, the podcast, the Michael Steele podcast. And, you know, if you got some, you want to drop a line or two, go to my website, michaelsteelnetwork.com. And there's all kinds of goodies on there as well. So I appreciate hanging with you guys always and putting those ideas out there about our country and our responsibilities to it. I think you guys have just been so good at that over the past couple of years and just appreciate the conversation with you. No, and we'll look forward to it later this week. And Stuart, where can we find you? Uh, Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. All right, everyone, you can find me at Reed Galen on Twitter. And gentlemen, once again, thanks for joining me, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.